Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, and today is Monday, February 21st, 2022. We hope you had a terrific weekend. We got a ton of great content and interviews for you on this episode, and we're going to kick things off by taking a look and a conversation of the history of boarding schools, Indian boarding schools here in New Mexico. No doubt you've seen the headlines on this story here in Albuquerque, really stemming from the discovery last year of hundreds of unmarked graves at a, the site of a former Indian boarding school in British Columbia. We know in Albuquerque, we had the Indian boarding school for decades, of course, the Santa Fe Indian School. And so the history here parallels in some ways, but is also very different, not necessarily as horrific of a history as you've heard about. Although, again, here in Albuquerque, we know there are unmarked graves as well. In the 4-H Park by the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center, there was a plaque there for years honoring that, remembering that. And last year, that was vandalized and disappeared. And that has kick-started a move by the city of Albuquerque to reach out to families affected by this, to gather stories and gather input on what to do uh, to really pay the proper respect and tribute to that history and one of the men who knows that history very well is Ted Hohola, a professor at UNM. He caught up with our correspondent Antonia Gonzalez recently to share some of that history and the process that is now underway. Hi to Haven, thanks for being here with me today. Hello, thank you for having me here today, I appreciate it. So I'm excited to talk about your exhibit, Radon Daughter, that's at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center right now. But I wanted to start with um, a little bit about you. Okay, well, um, I'm originally born and uh, was originally born in Portsmouth, Virginia. My dad was uh, stationed out there in the Marine Corps. So that's where I was born and then, um, we gradually moved back to California again. That's where my dad was stationed in uh, Camp Pendleton. But then periodically we'd go back to uh, Laguna Pueblo and stay with my uh, family out there. That was my grandparents and my uncle. So um, I really enjoyed that part because you know you get to see the different, um, I guess, the aspects of how living like culturally and then living off often on the reservation I guess it would be so I really enjoyed it and um, but I enjoyed being on the Pueblo more so because I got to spend time with my um, like I said my grandparents and relatives so, so. You, can you describe the landscape um, at Pueblo of Laguna maybe for people who've never been there before or like what that landscape especially looked to you um, like when you were a kid or growing up well, I mean, uh, what I remember and what I saw was just uh, mesas everywhere. I mean, I lived in, or they lived in the village of uh, Powati, which is located right in Laguna, Pueblo. And um, what I saw was just various shapes of, you know, mesas and, you know, cedar trees and just really pretty. But then uh, when I looked maybe to the south, I saw, you know, the uh, uranium mine, which I thought at the time when I was young, uh, I thought it was re more, more or less resembled a big ant pile, how it just tear, you know, teared into one big giant thing. 
But I didn't, you know, at that time I didn't know that's what it was. Later on, one, consider it one of the world's um, largest open pit uranium mines. And it was less than a thousand feet away from where my grandparents lived. Can you talk about what it was like um, to have that, the mine so close? It felt like, uh, you know, just this man-made anthill, basically just a man-made anthill out there. But when the sirens would go off, you know, they told, that meant like everybody would close their doors and, um, you know, shut everything up because the, depending on how the wind was blowing, the wind would come from the mine. And of course, all the little particles and everything would float towards the Pueblo. And um, so that's basically how um, I just saw, saw everything. And then when the cloud blew, the dust would rise up and it just seemed to me like a dragon, you know, turning over in his sleep and like kind of, you know, why am I being waking up? And this dust plumes come up, just like how, they, how the dragons would, you know, have the fumes come up. So it was like that. It was just kind of um, almost a fairy tale in a sense, but then also the reality of, um, later on I would know the reality of what it really was. I was reading about the mine, it operated from the 1950s to the mm -hmm. 1980s, and so it's been closed now for 40 years, but still hasn't been cleaned up. Um, can you talk a little bit about the other, like the impacts that the mine has had on the community and people's health? Uh, the, um, the impacts have been uh, probably uh, cancer, the main, the main one, and a lot of illnesses illnesses that maybe we never really saw or the people never saw. Um, that uh, was really kind of just uh, traumatizing. Just taking, you know, everything that saw, the, the trees, the trees dying, everything being monitored, you know, now, like with the EPA. So it became very scary, you know. But like I said, when you're small, you don't really see those things until you're older. And um, I just remember, you know, people passing away, you know, including from my own family, from things they never even, we never even heard of. So it was really, it was really sad and strange at the same time. Through your pieces that are on exhibit, when people look at that exhibit, um, Radon Daughter, as a whole, mm -hmm. what do you hope that they take away from that? I hope they take away, I guess maybe in a sense it's a warning. I would like to say it was a, it's a warning because I know people had contacted other areas to see if they were interested in drilling again. And so I think there were boreholes and I was like, mm, no, you know, we, we already went through that previously. A lot of people passed away. A lot of people are dealing with cancer, uh, children with uh, various illnesses. So it's, it's not, I don't think it's a really good thing. So this piece is called Radon Daughter, is mm -hmm. that right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about this piece and, and who's here and, and where? Okay, well this is uh, all the pieces that I have are reflected uh, around the landscape, in the landscape of Powhati because of the man-made mesas. Some are there, you know, by just by nature, but some have been built, 
you know, because of the reconstruction of the landscape. But this one, I had my daughter uh, in there and how she was looking out over the landscape and how we had the clouds, the, the blue clouds in the background uh, coming down and with the rain. And then it kind of dissipates into, you know, with the uranium coming up, or you, you, know, you mean uh, yellow cake? That's the purest form of uranium. So you see them both collide in the middle. And then my daughter, I did an abstract um, image of her with the rain coming down on one side. So it's like she's looking over, over into the landscape or a part of the landscape actually. And so that's what uh, she's doing in this painting. Hummingbirds make a frequent appearances in your paintings. Can you talk about the hummingbird? Oh uh, yes, the hummingbird uh, in most cultures is perceived as a, a good omen. And it brings a lot of messages of hope and happiness. That's what I've read and of course I understand, but this one is an, on a personal level. This was, uh, I think hummingbirds came into my life soon after the passing of my two-year-old son. And it was awful. I mean, the whole, the whole aspect of it. He had been, been fighting a horrible illness and later on, like at two years old, just succumbed to it. And uh, my mom had told me uh, that she, maybe two weeks or maybe a couple days after he had passed away, that there was a little tiny bird at the window and he was clawed on and singing a beautiful little song. And my mom told me, she said, I called all your family, yeah, the rest of the family in. And that bird, for some reason, just stayed there. And he kept singing and singing. And so my mom, in our language, she spoke to the little bird and she said that it was like as if the bird was telling her, tell my mom and my sister I'm okay. And she just believed it was my little boy, Sky. And um, everybody came in and they listened to that, you know, the little bird before he, de he before he decided to go. And everybody's in tears. And they just felt like, man, how, how amazing and how blessed and fortunate that we know that he's okay. So from then on, the hummingbird just played into a majority of my work. And I just felt like how strong of a presence he is. So with, but with this image, here it is, you find, uh, you know, with the uranium and the mining going on, uh, the hummingbird kind of like almost breaks apart. But yet again, he's coming together because of the rain. And rain, the rain symbolism always brings, um, like he's washing away all the, the sadness. And he wants everything to come back together with the terms of rebirth. You know, the landscape, um, animals, vegetables, um, trees, other plant life, that everything uh, comes back together and is healed. So I always think of the hummingbird in this image, he's coming back together. You know, he's going to be formed as one and go deliver his messages of, you know, hope and whatnot. So, yeah, this is another, another favorite of mine. So. Well, thank you for sharing your art with everyone, and, mm -hmm. um, and thanks for sharing your time with me today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it, too.
Thank you so much. Talking a lot about history in this episode here in New Mexico. Something we have talked about a lot over the years is the legacy of uranium mining here in New Mexico as well. We know it is a long one, uh, ties directly into the Manhattan Project and other things. And we know that there are many uncleaned mines still out there. The recently completed legislative session had some money set aside to try to finally do some of that cleanup. That is a great thing, but we know the impacts are intergenerational and long-lasting. And we recently caught up with an artist, DeHaven Solomon Chaffins, uh, from Laguna Pueblo, and she has had an exhibit on display at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center focused on her experience with uranium mining and uh, her interpretations of that history. And uh, we wanted to bring you that conversation with our land correspondent, Laura Paskis. Also want to let you know that if you want to go check out the exhibit, it's on display only through the end of the month at the Indian Public Cultural Center. So hurry up and get out there. If you missed that chance, there'll be other opportunities. We'll tell you about that here in a minute. But here now is correspondent Laura Paskis. Welcome to our three line panelists this week. First, let's say hello to Las Cruces Sun News reporter Algernon Damasa. Good to see you, my friend. You joined us at the start of the session as well. We also welcome back Trip Jennings. He's executive director at New Mexico In-Depth. Good to see you again. It's been a little bit, Trip. Welcome back. And yeah, hello to another you. long lost face, Julia Goldberg of the Santa Fe Reporter. It's been a while, but we're awfully glad to have you back. Thank you all for being here and rolling with all of this last minute news from the Capitol. We're going to start out by talking about what lawmakers have passed in the session. It took some procedural wrangling in both chambers, but the governor can claim several victories in this 30-day session. But some of her other top priorities will have to wait until a future year. We'll talk about all of that in a little over 20 minutes. For now, let's focus on what made it to Michelle Lujan Grisham's desk. The biggest headline being a nearly $8.5 billion budget. Despite other failures, wasn't this the main priority trip of the whole thing? Got to get that budget passed. Was there supposed to be a bigger fight about this in your mind? Uh, no, I mean, some of the fights were in some of the, the, the you know, obviously this is the biggest bill they have to pass every 30 day session, mm -hmm. but you know, the, the fights were in some of the language, you know, around, um, you know, they tried to sneak in hydrogen hub act stuff into the bill of uh, the budget. And that was taken out at the last minute. There were a little kind of like, uh, wrangling in the back rooms over this. I don't think there was a huge, uh, a fight because, you know, they put a lot of money into the reserves mm -hmm. and they have so much money this year that I think um, it's, it's um, I, I didn't see a, 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 re a really huge fight. Mm -hmm. Some of my panelists would disagree. It's an interesting point, Julia uh, Goldberg. You know, it's a big increase from any budgets we've ever had, but one of the big talking points in the budget is more money for public employees like teachers. Uh, how important was it for Democrats to get this passed, both for the people it impacts, certainly, but also heading into the midterms? Sure. I mean, certainly, I think the last thing they wanted was to come out of this session looking like they couldn't get anything done, even when they're flush with money. Mm -hmm. Can't do it then. When can you do it? And then given the crisis, um, the teacher vacancy crisis, I think getting that through um, was probably the most important thing for the governor to be able to say was accomplished. I, I still have questions about the um, how the actual budget recommendation for the state equalization guarantee, because there seem to be different numbers about what it's going to cost to implement mm. those raises, but I'm sure they'll figure it out at some point. 
That's a good point, right? At some point, that's an interesting point there. <laughs> Algernon, the revised budget plan included uh, includes $55 million for bonuses intended to help recruit and retain law enforcement officers. And interestingly, that's a lot higher than the original $13 million originally proposed by the governor. Uh, was that increase a makeup of sorts uh, as it became more clear the other anti-crime legislation wasn't going to make it through? Well, we can't forget that it's an election year and crime has been very much part of the agenda as mm -hmm. well as trying to signal strong support for law enforcement officers who have uh, in some ways been uh, crying foul and crying for help. Um, for a couple of years now. And mm -hmm. so that investment seemed very important. And I also think alongside the budget bill, something that hasn't gotten as much fanfare because of all the other sort of big headlines that have come out of it is that we got a larger than usual capital outlay uh, this year. A lot of projects and mm -hmm. a lot of money moved around, um, especially one thing uh, to notice is that a lot of money that had been devoted to public school outlays got transferred to the maintenance fund so that we can actually uh, clean and repair and maintain uh, some of the buildings that we've recently built. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's another big investment that we're gonna be seeing. So I didn't wanna just run away from law enforcement, but you know, besides the budget bill, that was also an actual uh, increased investment that we saw out of this session. Mm -hmm. uh, trip capping interest rates on storefront loans at 36% was anything but a slam dunk, but. You know, lawmakers ended up passing that limit after years and years and years and years of trying. Were you surprised that all that, you know, that it got done this year in the middle of all um, this other stuff? Yesterday, I my jaw was uh, like dropped right. when I saw that because, as I was telling before, uh, we started this. You know, I remember writing about this back in 2007 and then, you know, think New Mexico kind of uh, posted on Twitter that this has been around for at least since 1999. It's never gotten through. Uh, the lobby for the the industry has been uh, incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. and so I saw it, you know, as part of the, the you know, it's moving through the legislature. It's going to be another year uh, where it might make it close, um, but you know, it's not going to make it through. And when they passed it, um, I was that's a that's a huge surprise actually yeah. for me. Julia Goldberg, what do you what do you make of the um, the compromise to move the implementation back a year? I think um, I think it's just that it's a compromise, and I mean, as Trip was saying, I think the governor choosing to make this one of her agenda items helped move the needle on this longstanding problem. And important to remember too that Think New Mexico, um, which was such a force behind it, this is a piece of a larger framework that has to do with retirement security mm -hmm. in New Mexico. And you know, when I spoke with Fred Nathan, God, probably already two years ago on this. He told me that 62% of New Mexicans don't have anything saved for retirement mm. at all. Um, and 80% have $10,000 or less. So if you look at it in the big picture, I think pushing it back for a year doesn't make that much, is not that impactful because you're really talking about one piece of trying to look at a much larger um, problem. So this is a big victory, but I think it's sort of the beginning of addressing a, a really systemic issue. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned, uh, I, I appreciate you mentioning this because it, it fits in with the governor also getting her wish on eliminating the tax on Social Security. But then also, again, she did push it through the gross receipts tax uh, uh, cut as well. Does do those add, Julia, to the understanding that she really got something of substance here on this, in, in, this, uh, in this package? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, tax reform isn't probably the sexiest issue during right. an election year when you start getting into the weeds of it. And certainly, I think more than one lawmaker pointed out that this was a kind of confusing way to deal with tax policy, mm-hmm. sort of piecemeal, but both the predatory lending piece and the social security issue, those are not brand new problems that haven't been studied. The analysis wasn't slap bash. They they knew these were the right pieces to go. And I think certainly for seniors who, as I understand it, vote, um, it's going to be a welcome, a welcome decision. Mm-hmm. Algernon, we got a new t- a child tax credit in there too. Uh, again, when you start to look at this closer, does the package look a little bit, look a little bit better <laughs> on closer inspection? Well, um, we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, tax policy is complicated and it involves in in things like a child tax credit and some of these other tax incentives and credits that have been passed this session. Mm-hmm. Um, it's we're really going to see we're basing it on projections of how, what the stimulus value will be, how much spending money, discretionary money we're moving into people's hands and whether that's going to go into savings account or whether that's going to go into the economy. Um, it's interesting, and I think we'll probably be talking about this quite a bit, but this was a 30-day session, which in even-numbered years is the sessions that are supposedly devoted to budgetary and financial policy. But tax policy is complicated, and <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to jam that as well as all of the hundred of hundreds of other pieces of legislation into a 30-day session, I think it's hard to do tax policy really well especially when you have these bills coming late in the session, when the nights go longer and lawmakers are trying to work this out on sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll see. And I, you know, I pour through the fiscal analyses of these tax credits and I'm not convinced that the numbers are going to align the way they think it does because it's so hard to predict consumer behavior. Mm, excellent point there. Hey, Trip, we got to go back to crime. There's you know, doubt. Again, it took a rebirth of sorts for a package of bills. Added on to a related bill as a 160-page amendment, as you know. But early Thursday morning, very early Thursday morning, a deal was struck. And included in the package is stricter penalties for some crimes, in, uh, police recruitment and retention bonuses, uh, new judgeships, including here in Albuquerque, creation of a crime for operating a chop shop and expanded access to ankle monitoring for pretrial defendants. Is that enough? I mean, for critics that said this legislature were dragging their heels on curbing crime to the last second here? You know, when we talk about crime and then we talk about it within the context of elections, um, it's really going to depend on, you know, where you come down. Uh, I think there will be critics who are like, this is not enough. Yeah. You know, people who, who will say, hey, uh, they got it through. They, you know, some of this other stuff was onerous uh, on one end and other people will say it's not enough. You know, um, the governor really wanted some wanted to to show that that she was taking crime seriously because it is it has been a, a major issue. Um, I, I think that it's uh, honestly it's like tax policy sometimes with elections. You you don't know exactly how this is going to be received um, as it goes to the election year, but I do think that this is going to be where she says I in in ads i did this i did this i also did raise teacher salaries it's going to be about marketing yeah so i think in some ways this is about you know getting the word uh, she has something she can hang her hat on for re-election frankly mm-hmm. julia pick up on that if you would you know the, this idea that the crime bill had so much stuff in the air going in and then coming out of the back end of these 30 days 
again, is it going to be enough for people to feel like something good has happened here that makes people feel safer, frankly? I mean, you know, just to reinforce what Tripp just pointed out, you know, the Republican Governors Association group just unveiled this, you know, six-figure ad campaign solely based on the governor not being tough enough on crime. So this gives her something. The details of this bill, I find very... Um, I don't know how anyone could look at this and actually feel like, oh, this is helpful to anybody. The electronic monitoring, there's only electronic monitoring, correct me if I'm wrong, someone, I think in four, in the second, the fourth, San Juan and Sandoval, the bill doesn't require it be increased anywhere else. It doesn't really require anything. It creates a grant program for pretrial services. It doesn't say when that should happen. It doesn't exactly say who's paying for it. Um, it's sort of, you know, so in general, even the analysis from the legislature um, says, you know, the best way to deal with crime is to have more treatment, is to have this overall approach. Mm -hmm. You know, this to me sort of, they chipped away at a couple of things, but I don't, I don't actually see how this is particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. some, of, some of the higher profile details strike me as just that, that high profile, not necessarily substantive, but... Good point I mean, there. even during the, the committee process, the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman, uh, Senator Cervantes from down here in Las Cruces, I mean, he said himself that sentence enhancements, which got a lot of play yep. in this package, um, he suggested that sentence enhancements don't really have much deterrent value and uh, are kind of a feel-good measure. They, they, they allow lawmakers to feel like they've done something without actually addressing the issue. This is, you know, I mean, Senator Cervantes is very candid about these things. And he said at one point, this is a near quote. He said, I know it's an election year and we do things. Right. I, I mean, can I say, uh, Algernon is, I mean, we're all talking about the same thing, which is when we talk about legislative sessions in elections year, election years, mm -hmm. or even in a out two years, you always have to think about how this plays in the election. And that's that's kind of how this this thing probably was put together. That's part of it. That's yeah. part of it. The, yeah. the, the, the analysis by folks is how is this going to play in, in June and in, and in November? Yep. Good point there. Hey, I want to get some final thoughts on what lawmakers were able to accomplish during this regular session uh, during this 30, as Algernon mentioned. Let me start with you, Algernon, on that. Uh, again, this is opinion based, so it's tough to do with reporters. But out of what passed, should we be happy with the session in its total, its totality? I don't want to annoy you, Gene, but I'm actually going to sort of bridge our uh, segments here. And I'm actually going to talk about how, although some things did not make it to the finish line, mm -hmm. I think that lawmakers and advocates were able to really advance some conversations that will return. Um, I think there you're feeling the shadow of the election bill mm -hmm. and some of the voting rights position uh, provisions, as well as election security provisions that didn't make it in the closing minutes of the session but i think that's coming back and i think that it, you know in that failure there's going to be a lot of energy and passion and perhaps some organizing at the street level uh to try to push that through in a, in a future session and i don't mean that I, that's not the only example but i think that right. might be the loudest example of that sometimes even if the bill doesn't make it to the governor's desk, mm -hmm. the debate and the politics actually does have a positive way of moving the ball forward. That's a good way to put it, Algernon. That's interesting. Julia, your thoughts on that? Should we consider this 30 a success for New Mexico? I mean, I think that the, um, the bill legalizing fentanyl strips 
um, for drug checking is a really important bill. And I, you know, I guess unlike other reporters, I'm happy to have an opinion. I was really pleased to see that it passed and that it passed easily because that hasn't been the case in other states. It was a similar kind of amendment to uh, Harm Reduction Act in Pennsylvania failed. I know there's mm -hmm. other states that are putting it off because they're concerned about how it'll be perceived. But there's just growing research that this is really an important deterrent and a kind of modernized deterrent moving away from sort of thinking of the drug problem as being one that's entirely around injection, injection, injectionables, mm -hmm. injections. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was pleased to see that it didn't get mired down in kind of a moralistic fight about drug use, because I think, you know, a lot of it connects to the problems with violence. It connects to the problems, um, you know, with unhoused people, the opiate and fentanyl issue kind of spreads all across New Mexico's issues. So I think it's, you know, not as, Fancy. It probably won't affect everyday life for you or me, but it's. I think it was an important bill. So, if nothing else, I don't think folks would argue that, Julie. Uh, Julia, absolutely. Trip your thoughts. A success this thirty. I, I I have three. Um, one in the larger education K twelve education debate. There was a lot of backroom dealing with, you know, uh, New Mexico's twenty three tribes having more control over educating their own children right. and. Actually, they got a lot more money in the Indian Education Fund this year than they ever have. Um, that was a big uh, win for uh, advocates from the tribal communities. Uh, another one um, is, uh, this is something that wasn't paid attention to greatly, but there is a, a uranium cleanup bill that, that, right. that passed today, yep. which is a big deal up in around the tribal areas in the Northwest. Um, huge, it's been around for decades. Um, and, uh, you know, I said three and I, <laughs> It just dropped out of my head. It'll come back. I don't back. know what the third one will about. come back. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no sweat. Thank you all for that discussion. We'll check back in with all of you in, in less than 15 to talk about all of the legislation that didn't pass and what happens next. As we mentioned, time is running out to see that exhibit, Radon Daughter, at the Indian Public Cultural Center. But we thank uh, DeHaven Solomon Chaffins for her time and her work and her effort here. We encourage you to get out there before the end of the month to see that. And if not, uh, there is going to be more of her work on display at the uh, IAIA uh, Museum in Santa Fe. We've got all the details for you in the show description, the episode description. So check that out. Really great work. And we appreciate her time so, so much. We want to shift gears now to uh, UNM's Africana Studies program, which, as you may have read, is about to become a fully-fledged ethnic studies program with a master's degree and eventually a doctoral degree. We know that there is a Native Studies program already, as well as Hispanic Studies, and this is the latest in that long and rich history of uh, diversity and equity and inclusion at UNM. And there's a brand new person to head up that charge, the new director of the Africana Studies program. Her name is Kirsten Pye Buick. She joined us recently on Facebook Live with host Jean Grant to talk about taking on this role at this crucial time and what her goals and expectations are and what it'll mean for New Mexico. So I wanted to bring that to you now.
Hey, folks, it's Wednesday, a little bit afternoon. It's time for another Facebook Live. We always appreciate you joining us, be it live or after the fact, on the Facebook feed we have for Focus on New Mexico. Pleased to be joined today by Kirsten Pye Buick. She is the newly named director of the University of New Mexico's Africana Studies program. And welcome and congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. It's a yep. pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Let me give the folks a little bit more sense of your background. You, you didn't just show up in this position. So you've been a professor of art history. You've been an associate dean of equity and excellence, a special assistant to the dean of arts and sciences. And you recently took over the post of director of Africana Studies, of course. And you bring all of that to UNM over 20 years. And I have to say, it's, it's a pretty amazing accomplishment when you think about all that's happened with Africana Studies, uh, the program over the years, it's really been building towards something. Um, I, why did you want to take this role, additional role on in the first place is my first question. Well, I, I've been here 20 years, as you said, and mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, I was associate director of Africana Studies and mm -hmm. left the post kind of heartbroken because um, you know, at that point, we were over 40 years of program on campus, and I just didn't feel the support from upper administration at the time or from other departments. That has changed. And under the leadership of President Garnett Stokes, uh, Provost James Holloway, Dean Arash Mafi, uh, um, Finney Coleman as the head of the Faculty Senate, all of that um, decided decided for me that I would try again and usher the program to departmental status. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, it's a great uh, segue right there because the biggest news, of course, is this is a crucial time for the program because Africana Studies is slated to become a full-fledged ethnic studies department. How does that change things for you and your approach? What it does is it, it allows us to take on full-time tenured faculty and to promote them up through the ranks to associate and full professor. And we become equals in the institution. In, in, in what sense? Equals in what sense for non-academic folks? The, well, job security, right? The mm -hmm. teaching load for a tenure track professor is two classes per semester with time off for research. And so it allows the, the future department to uh, grow, grow in, in intellect, grow in muscle, grow in, in kind of everything. But I do wanna acknowledge that in the past, the professors that we've had, the adjuncts, the postdocs have all sustained us to this point. And so I just want to acknowledge what they've done. The previous directors, uh, retired former faculty, they, they've, held, they've held it down. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because when I look at the UNM uh, faculty and staff page for Africana Studies, it's like a New Mexico all-star team of, you know, of amazing black minds. Emmanuel Ansonye, of course, Charles Becknell Jr., give me a break. You know what I mean? Marsha Hardman. Natasha Howard, Dr. Jamal Martin, one of our favorite uh, friends here at uh, New Mexico PBS, Cheryl Means, of course, Extora Woodley, she's been around forever. 
you know, at Mosu Shankuri. These are amazing people. I mean, what is that like to be coming into a situation? You're not having to rebuild a staff here. You have, you have a, a tremendous staff you're going to just walk into. Right. And, and what that means is doing right by the ones who are there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in terms of postdocs, if at all possible, transitioning them to tenure track, um, providing them with research support so that they can uh, generate the publications that make tenure possible. So, you know, coming in and supporting what's there and helping to grow what's there. Mm -hmm. what's, your, what's your sort of a philosophy about hiring new faculty? What are you looking for in someone to be uh, able to teach in the Africana Studies program? If, if they are themselves grounded in Africana Studies, then um, excellence in that area, right? We've had examples, Cortez Williams, for example, great example, uh, you know, his pioneering work on Blacks in the Southwest, which we've um, kind of retooled. So the African diaspora in the Southwest. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so someone who, if they are, you know, grounded in Africana studies, demonstrating the excellence of what that means, if they are joint appointments, then making sure that they know their their, dis their main discipline thoroughly so that when they come to Africana studies, they bring the richness of that other discipline into Africana studies, but understand that, that kind of other discipline through the lens of, of Africana studies, what it means to be a people, right? Who, who has a very unique and complex and complicated history, genealogy, you know, we are, we are the definition of, of, of complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there, let me put it this way. Is there something about the Southwest and our place in it that actually sort of narrows your choices? I, I have to, it's just in my imaginings. I don't know anything about this, but it'd be, you, you're going to need someone who understands the Southwest, I'm imagining uh, as well. Yes, someone who understands the Southwest and who mm -hmm. understands our uh, partnerships with the, the surrounding pueblos and mm -hmm. reservations, who understands Hispanic and Latinx, right? That we are a crossroads. And you know, the reason I actually took this job over 20 years ago was because when I interviewed, the ways in which this institution in this state understands itself to be American is very different than either coast. And so I've stayed for over 20 years because I have a lot of headspace here. I have a lot of room to think, um, to research, to write, to be creative. And my teaching, my scholarship has been enriched by this place, right? Mm -hmm. By my, my connections and obligations to First Nations people my connections and obligations to Hispanic people. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. When you move here from somewhere else, it's, yeah, I, I, can, I can totally connect to that. Interestingly, uh, one of the hard fought things over the past decade or so, as you know, was to be able to get the program off in the right way. And you're gonna start with a master's uh, program, which is pretty interesting. And eventually at some point, a PhD program. 
I have to think you're coming into this at a, a, just an incredible time to shepherd both of those programs. I'm so curious y- your, your feelings about having a master's program to get your arms around right out, right out of the gate. I, I, I'm ready. I've been chairing search committees since I was an <laughs> assistant professor here. Y- mm-hmm. You know how that works, right? We're, I, I never saw it as overly burdensome, the things I was asked to do because I'm minoritized with, you know, within the system and I, I'm, uh, I'm a woman. And so, uh, and a black woman in particular, I never saw it as burdensome. I always saw it as opportunities. And so in the over 20 years I've been here mm-hmm. in my own department of uh, art and in my area of art history, I have helped to transform that place. We finally have um, uh, uh, an indigenous person teaching Pueblo pottery. We finally have a black woman teaching art studio, Stephanie Woods, Clarence Cruz as tenure track now in, in, um, in sculpture. And so I know how to transform these places. It's always the long game, right? And so it's persistence and the long game. And I have just enough left in me to, I think, <laughs> create this master's program. Right. Well, hey, it's not an easy thing. Professors are not shy personalities, that's for sure. Um, you know, interesting, I, I can't help but think about some of the broader uh, questions here, even with a PhD program. And, and, and I'm allowing myself just to p- kind of think about it but, uh, in, in this sense. The students that go out in the world after finishing a PhD program in Africana Studies focused on the Southwest, thinking about it after a decade, a couple of decades, it's kind of exciting to think about that there is going to be, you know, folks like this getting out into our world. I'm, you mentioned the long game here. What's your long vision for students coming out of this program? It, it, again, thinking about it from PhD program is already in place down the road and how you see the perfect students sort of coming out of this whole situation. I see them as as combining this degree with um, degrees in medicine, degrees okay. in law, degrees in philosophy. There's a great mm. need in philosophy to add some color to that discipline and truth mm. to that discipline. Mm-hmm. So I I see it as as veins in a body or rivers in a landscape, and and just permeating. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, you know, you were also part of that recent ceremony by the Smithsonian in D.C. for the U.S. Postal Service. In case folks don't know about it, the 45th Heritage Stamp for artist Mary Edmonds, Edmonia Lewis. Uh, very interesting. You know, the, that part of you, I'm going to imagine, is never going to leave you. You're an artist. You're, you came up through the art department, right? How does that inform what you want to do with Africana Studies? Mm-hmm. Edmonia Lewis was interesting because she didn't have much biography and the biography she did have, you had to piece it together through sometimes very unkind letters written about her by her white patrons. Mm -hmm. And so um, in in working on her, I didn't have the, the burden of biography because the problem with biography, right? especially for people who have race or have gender, 
is that often the biography is used to pathologize them, to paint them as sick, and then to read that sickness into their work or to read that perversity into their work. You couldn't do that with her. You had to start fresh with her and you had to build around her. And so I, I am, uh, in terms of an art, art history, I'm more empathetic to sculpture. I, I'm more sculptural in my thinking. And so mm. I pictured her as a three-dimensional absence. Right? And, and so when I think about Africana studies and, and I think about her power and her creativity in the midst of all the racism and sexism, we survive. We know how to survive. And so I see Africana studies as helping provide those tools and not just to African-American students or students from the, the Black diaspora, but all students. And so my commitment is really to all students that you can all come to this space and learn something and learn something about survival and creativity and survival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, again, since you have a long view, you've been at that, at this, I should say for, for over a decade now, I just, I'm curious about your opinion. We've had a Native American studies program, a Chicano studies program at UNM for a long time and a woman in gender studies departments for a long time. Why did it take so long for Africana studies? I, I'm still very confused well, why this just Chicano, didn't happen 10 years ago. Right. Chicano studies uh, just transition from program to department. <clears throat> and okay. it takes, you know, institutions are funny. They are gatekeeping you know, keeping people out as well as letting them in. And here in the Southwest, where we are overwhelmingly brown, overwhelmingly brown, and I include us in that, in that metric, it seems like Research One universities in those contexts are especially invested in, in keeping us programs, in keeping us you know, on a slightly lower rung, hierarchically speaking. But as I said, there's a new day. Chicano Studies is now a department. Native American Studies, which was once a program, is now a department. And after 51 years, we are going to become a department. I'm curious about the support you've gotten from the upper levels of UNM. Have you had a chance to have a heart-to-heart -heart with President Stokes and others about what you want to do with the program. And I'm curious about the level of enthusiasm you've received from them as well. Mm -hmm. The people who matter, <laughs> President Stokes, Provost Holloway, Dean Arash Mafi, um, uh, Dr. Finney Coleman, mm -hmm. they are in full vocal support. I also have the, the deep and much appreciated support of the associate deans in arts and sciences, associate dean Mary Domsky, um, senior associate dean Philip Ganderton. And so in those ways, I feel fully supported. Now I know uh, having been black all my life, right? All 58 years, I know that we are not welcome everywhere, that this process isn't welcome or accepted everywhere, but I don't live my life based on can't. I don't live my life based on side-eyed skepticism. I can't. 
Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. I hear that loud and clear. I want to finish with this. I, I want to thank you for noting some of the folks that preceded you, Dr. Alfred Malthusen. You didn't do it by name, but there's yes. a lot of folks out there. That Sherry, you, Dr. It, Sherry Burr. Thank yes. you. Yeah. If there's others, please go ahead and toss them in there. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of folks have worked very hard, and especially Dr. Finney Coleman as well. I'm glad you noted him a couple of times. Um, Kirsten Pye Buick, new director of the University of New Mexico's Africana Studies program, now a full-fledged program, starting with a master's program and a soon PhD program as well. Thank you so much for your time. This is very important, you know, uh, uh, not just as a personal accomplishment for you, which is big enough, but as something that we can all celebrate as African-Americans across the state. It's a big deal. And, and I really, I, I tip my hat to you. Congratulations. 10, 20 years well spent to get to this point. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gene. Yeah, more than our pleasure, Kirsten. We'll catch up with you. Folks, we'll see you Friday night. We're going to have a special show this week having a reaction to the obviously soon to be closing down legislative session, which closes tomorrow, Thursday at noon. We will have full reaction from a great panel on Friday night for that as well. So we'll see you next Wednesday for another Facebook Live. Until then, enjoy the weekend and everyone take care. That'll do it for us for now, but we appreciate you as always for tuning in. Encourage you to follow along throughout the week, especially if you want to see those Facebook Lives when they happen. Just subscribe, follow us on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Love to hear from you, whatever platform you are on and prefer. Just search for NM in Focus. But until next time, thanks so much for watching and listening, and we will see you next time. Stay safe, stay healthy.